This episode is brought to you by Next One Up. Next One Up transforms the lives of young men in Baltimore City by providing long-term mentoring and coaching during the critical ages of 13 to 24. Innovative programming blends a focus on academics, athletics, and leadership to infuse out of school with purpose and help young men create a dynamic and concrete vision for their future. Next One Up, transforming the lives of young men in Baltimore City by supporting and advancing their academic, athletic, and social development. Learn more, donate, or get involved at nextoneup.org. And it came on and uh, he hits that first note. You know, I went to the graveyard and um, it made me cry. <laughs> I immediately just sort of burst into tears. It wasn't because it was uh, necessarily a, a sad song or anything, but there was something about that totally human raw burst of noise that escaped him. that It just really, really resonated with me. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Guinevere Raymond is probably best described as an American primitive guitarist. While extreme dexterity is a foundational requirement for working in this genre, and one of which Raymond has full command, her other talents extend in many directions. She holds a PhD in astrophysics and is a professional video game designer. Her work, which is released by esteemed folk label Tompkins Square, is simple in its origins, but complex in its execution. The first song Raymond chose as being formative for her was Vamos by the Pixies. (laughs) 
pensando sobre brillando con mi sister New Jersey. Ella me dijo que hizo una vida buena ya. Bien rica, bien chévere. I first heard the Pixies when I was in high school. I was around, I guess, 15, 16. And I was really heavily into a lot of guys like Nirvana and Hole and L7 and that kind of loud guitar Seattle vibe. Um, but someone gave me a copy of it was that double CD of Surfer Rosa and Come On Pilgrim by the Pixies. I I'd never heard uh, anything like it before. It kind of it sounded like the stuff I was already listening to, but also it kind of sounded like it came from outer space. It, it had this great sense of they're so poppy, but at the same time incredibly angular and and, and strange. Uh, certainly, Joe Santiago remains one of my absolute all-time favorite guitar players. His he has this incredible ability to. He just knows when to not play, which is such a rare skill in a lot of guitar players. But when he does play, it's the perfect note, and it's not necessarily a note that you would have thought of yourself. He uses discord really beautifully, and he bends those notes, and he reaches these really strange places. And he uses the sound of the guitar as much as the notes that he's playing. And then on top of that, you have you know, Kim Deal's great driving bass and Dave Lovering's pounding drums to create this incent, this you know, trance. So, um, Vamos, I think, is my probably my favorite Pixies song, and it was the one that really grabbed me the most when I first heard it because it, it does it is like a trance song. It totally it totally sucks you in. It's got that simple but catchy little bass line that doesn't let up for the whole song, and it's got. You know, Santiago is most Santiago was hitting his guitar and using feedback and going all over the shop. And it's got those typical Frank Black lyrics, which are that stream of consciousness where you don't really know what it is he's singing about. You just kind of have this sense that it's about something mildly unpleasant. So it kind of makes you uncomfortable, but at the same time, really, really, it really sucks you in. So to me, that was a really important record because it, It taught me about the idea of the sound is the thing, not necessarily just the song. It's not it's not a backing to a tune. The song is like a living the sound is like a living, breathing thing itself. It's it's half of the point is to create this world of noise that hits you in the face and draws you into a parallel dimension where this is happening. And I think the way that the Pixies kind of combined that with really, really great, catchy, poppy riffs and, and licks it made something you know tremendously uh powerful musically 
And you had already been playing uh, guitar for a number of years, probably by the time you, you heard this. Were you playing like rock music or were you trying to play stuff that sounded like the, the, the punk and grunge stuff that you heard early on? Yeah, I was, you know, I was in lots of punk bands and grunge bands playing just sort of chugging riffs. Um, you know, very much, you know, I, I, the first band I ever heard that I, I, I dug was Nirvana. Uh, so I was in a lot of bands playing, playing like Nirvana. And I know that obviously Nirvana themselves were hugely influenced by the Pixies, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, so yeah, hearing, hearing the Pixies and their use just of noise uh, really changed my playing a lot. And I started to, you know, use feedback and every single, I'm sure I drove every single drummer I played with nuts because I kept on asking him just to play that, that straight beat, that, that relentless beat, you know, and same for bass players. It was very uh, important to me. You know, there's something about that, that uh, quality of sound that you're talking about that I'm interested in because, you know, I'm old enough that, you know, when I was younger, a lot of what you listened to music for and a lot of how it was evaluated by other people, I think was, you know, the lyrics and a good song was a song that had, you know, lyrics that made sense and, you know, in some way caught your attention. And then especially during the the eighties and into the nineties, I think that that, the sound became more important and more prevalent, at least in rock music. And to the point now where, you know, I don't really care what anyone's singing about as long as it isn't blatantly stupid. It's, it's that overall effect and and the way the band sounds and and that, that power. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's that kind of ability to the, the, the lyrics are somehow representative of the, or maybe somehow, amplify the general sense that the music is giving you without giving giving the game away because somehow I, I always think it I don't always think I often think it makes it it kind of takes some of the magic away when I have a very literal sense of what a song is about it's it somehow speaks to me more when I have to just kind of feel what the what what the lyrics are getting at and often yeah they don't those two the, the lyrics and, and the music, they, they morph together and they create this really nebulous thing that's really hard to articulate through any other medium than music. It's a very non-literal expression. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes people talk about their their terrible teenage bands uh, and then quickly move on. But I, I feel compelled to ask, what were the names of some of your your, your teenage bands? Oh my god, I'm trying to remember. I think, I think we had one band called Hermaphrodite Hyena, which was a good one. <laughs> um, uh, I think I was in a band called Mea Culpa for a while, which I, along with the eight thousand other Mea Culpas in the world, um, Furious George was another one. I, I think the the sort of the first band that I, I played with that we were, you know, that we were, I think we were pretty good, was a band called The Physicists, which is a somewhat less embarrassing less embarrassing name we were a good band we used to play around the valleys I was sort of thrashy four-piece punk band I still I still kind of dig I've got some CDs of that and it's, it's I like it and this was uh, in around Cardiff in, in Wales yeah in around Cardiff and uh, 
and around the valleys. We, I used to quite enjoy playing the valleys the most because it's those sort of little towns where, uh, you know, they have one gig a month, so you get every little kid you know, in the town coming along and going nuts. I always think those are the, those are the best shows. The second song Raymond chose is essential to her formation as an artist was Graveyard Blues by Roscoe Holcomb. listening to a lot of pre-war blues and Appalachian folk and stuff like that for a while before I got around to, to hearing Roscoe Holcomb. And I think I, I had him on a, I think it might have been a mountain music, yeah, mountain, a mount, uh, one of the folkways mountain music CDs. And it came on and uh, he hits that first note, you know, I went to the graveyard and um, it made me cry. I immediately just sort of burst into tears. It wasn't because it was a, a necessarily a, a sad song or anything, but there was something about that totally human raw burst of noise that escaped him that it just really, really resonated with me. I kind of, it's a really, you know, it's, it's, it's been a long time since he recorded that record and it's in a completely different geographical place to where I am from, but I didn't feel any sense of that separation between us all i felt was this human voice screaming out from the void and it's really it really really touched me uh and i guess that if i hadn't already been it been sold on you know this sort of stuff that definitely that definitely did it um and the way he plays guitar on that record i i I think is just incredible. There's this, he just hammers it. There's no nuance or subtlety to it. It's not, it's not a sophisticated style of playing, but it's just so effective. It's just so energetic and raw. Just, just, he has to get out. He has to get out of his system and he, and he does. Uh, yeah, it does. And I think that's what I like about, that song particularly, but also that whole range of similar kind of songs. So none of them feel like they had any any choice in existing. They just kind of expelled from 
various players who are, you know, living living maybe kind of hard lives, and that was that was how they were getting out of them. Even though you know you think about it, it's like it's you know graveyard blues. It sounds like it's a pretty morbid title, but it's quite joyful. Even though it's you know about wanting to wanting to die because I guess your your loved one is has gone. Uh, I, maybe it's like a form of musical therapy, but you know <laughs> for people who wouldn't necessarily go to therapy. Uh, I just think there's something. It's the it's amongst the most human music if you get me that kind of exists, and uh, Roscoe Holcomb is just is something about it's something inimitable about him. There's no other person can kind of express that. I mean, you know, there's that famous phrase about him, that high and lonesome sound. Or the uh, the other one that Bob Dylan coined, the untamed sense of control. And I, I get that. Like, he, his 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 rawness is... He, he, he controls it perfectly, but it isn't tamed by any, um, I guess, music, traditional, like, classical musicianship. It's It's primitive. It's a primitive form of music uh and its primitivism is kind of what makes it so effective it wouldn't be improved by adding nuance you know no and i think you've really put your finger on something that is part of the appeal of performers like holcomb is they were not professional musicians you know he worked in coal mines you know this was something and not to say he wasn't at some level an entertainer because i'm sure he played and people liked for him to play but that wasn't how he made his living. That was something he did for other reasons. And I think that that's probably a, a part of the appeal of music from him and music from people like him is that some quality of, of not being out to make you happy, but it does anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, it, it just, it exists because it has to. At what point in your, um, your life, your development, did you hear this? Were you maybe in college? Were you already playing mostly acoustic? Yeah, I, I th- well, I started picking up, I mean, the I started picking up blues originally as opposed to you kind of more, sort of the more mountain folk music. Um, so I, I had started to learn, I heard stuff like uh, John Hurt and Skip James. So I had started to... Um, try and pick up some of that holding some, you know, from the, from the technical perspective, that style of playing. And I, and I, and I tracked down a, uh, uh, a guy in Cardiff who was a great blues player. Cause I wanted to just to someone who knew what they were doing to kind of give me a hand. Uh, as so I was just listening to records and trying to figure it out for myself. And that style of playing is, is, it is, it is quite technical in a sense, I guess. Um, but I'd been, you know, getting deeper and deeper into things and gathering records. And yeah, that's kind of how I came across Roscoe Holcomb, who kind of, you sort of got added to that, what I regarded as the, the holy trinity of, of, of players, which is John Hurt, Skip James, and then it became Roscoe Holcomb. What put you on that particular track? How did you get from, you know, sort of punk rock and grunge into all this music from you know, decades and thousands of miles away. So my, my parents had a lot of records lying around. They had a lot of Dylan and Bella Underground and that sort of, you know, 60s, 70s, Greenwich Village stuff who, you know, were quite responsible for that folk revival. 
And also, you know, I my first love was Nirvana, and they obviously have that, f- you know, very famously do a Lead Belly track on their Unplugged album. So I just started to trace down all of the bands that I was listening to and finding these common this common ground of influence in early American folk music and blues. Uh, so I started listening to it. You could get these little cheap CDs that were called you know, The Blues Roots of Whoever, and it would be some you know famous contemporary musician. And I think it was an excuse to you know bung out uh, copyright-free music onto a CD to sell people for you know, on real cheap on real cheap discs. But I, I would go to the shops and I would buy fistfuls of them and listen to them and find you know. And on, it was on all of these really that I discovered. You know, your you John Hurts and your Roscoe, well, no, your Roscoe Holcombs and your Skip James. I woke up this morning and found he was only a The final song Raymond chose as being crucial to her was Requiem for John Hurt by John Fahey. lessons from this blues player in uh, I'd found in Cardiff who was you know the only player that I, that was interested in the same things that I was in a good mile radius that I could find anyway and I'd been playing a lot of what you would guess you would call little instrumental blues pieces that I was making up because I don't sing and uh, I, I'm not really one for learning other people's songs like whole so I, I spent a lot of time just making up stuff myself. And I didn't realize that that was a, you know, a thing that was kind of a genre of music. And my, the, this guy, this guitar teacher, he, he, he played me uh, a, a John Faye record. Uh, yeah, and that kind of changed my, my life, really. Um, just that, the idea of there you know the guitar isn't backup the guitar is its own thing it's all you need to be able to express yourself it it allows and in fact instrumental music allows an expression of things that are lyrically inarticulable i believe because there are lots of things i mean maybe for great writers they they're able to express themselves in these very complex ideas but i am not but when i have a guitar in my hands i feel like i can get some of those nebulous senses that are on the back of my neck out in the front, you know? Uh, and this song in particular, I think, really solidifies what makes Fahey like, special in comparison to a lot of other players playing similar stuff. He kind of goes through this 
huge range of emotions. It feel it's a really bipolar record where it has these beautiful, elegant, little pretty sections, and then in a you know half a bar later, he's just hammering his guitar and playing this angular, difficult stuff. But again, kind of like the Pixies, always really catchy. He's combined that sense of trance and drama and angularness and difficultness with a sort of pop sensibility. Uh, it feels, you know, it feels like a composition rather than someone just noodling on a guitar. And I think that using that, he's able to kind of express something that feels really universal because he isn't articulating it with words. So we, I don't know, I feel like I can personally lock onto it a little bit more without being expressly told about what a song is about. I also think the songs, you can really tell like a lot about him in this song. You can kind of tell he's a pretty, pretty messed up dude. He doesn't sound like a well-adjusted person on the other side of that guitar in terms of the sense of what he's, what he's expressing. Uh, and on top of that, again, what makes Faye so special is that it's not, it, it kind of makes it obvious that the technical proficiency he has is really just a means to an end. It, it, it's it's the simple parts of it that make it really effective. Um, and his voice is just immediately recognizable. Even though there's a billion imitators of Faye, you can kind of always tell when it's really Fahey. There's something he is able to do that no one else is able to imitate, which means it's something above and beyond just that technical proficiency. And I think it made me kind of realize that that was what was important as a musician, was to be able to, you know, find your own voice. Because you need to be able to, you know, express your own voice if you're going to be able to express your own particular view of the universe, you know, and your own very specific scent of mental illnesses, it's, you need to have your own capacity to express that. That isn't an imitation. If you get me. I do. I do. Well, and it's, it's interesting, I think, because one thing I was struck about your your music and your 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 record is that, you know, as you point out, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a John Fahey, you know, acolyte imitator. And um, but I think a lot of people take different things from it. And I think a lot of people take sort of the more um, uh, I don't know how to how to express this exactly the more sort of trancey uh, extended composition, um, the sort of more kind of uh, uh, avant-garde or, or sixties feel. I'm not doing a good job of, of expressing this, but you in your music, you seem to have hewed a little closer to some of the source material. You know, the, the pieces are kind of short and they have identifiable ties with, you know, sort of, different types of music or, or different flavors of music, but they're not, you don't, you, you don't seem as interested in that, you know, six minute, you know, Raga imitation or something. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, certainly for me, it's always tied back to, 
I, I you know I come from this this punk background, so I like I like a song. I like I like I like there to be a riff that's kind of holding it, that's holding it all together, and you can go off in these directions, and you can you know you can go to the, you can go to Mars, and you can go to a different galaxy, but you kind of got to come back to Earth at some point, and you got to get back into that original riff because that's what that's what makes it a song. Right. And frankly, another thing I really like about your music is that there's a certain swing to it. And there was always, you know, almost always, uh, you know, a, a sort of a swing or, or rhythmic bounce to Fahey, unless he was off on some, you know, music concrete tangent. So good, good job on the guitar playing there. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so was this, it sounds like maybe that this was the catalyst for something, you know, you'd been, you'd been playing and, uh, for a long time and you'd been exploring this music and you'd been sort of writing your own things. Is this sort of the seeds of your, your current work? Oh yeah, completely. I mean, prior to that, I'd been, you know, I'd been playing the guitar for a long time, but it was always in bands. It was always writing a song for a singer to sing on top of. You know, and I was quite bossy and I would always try and push the guitar to the forefront. But the idea of, I didn't, you didn't really need anything other than just the guitar. You know, if you, if you, if you could, if you had the ability, you know, the technical ability to kind of physically play it in that way, then you could kind of do everything you needed to do. And I'm not dismissing, I still love playing stupid, loud, wailing guitar in, in loud, noisy bands because it's, it's fun and there's a lot to be expressed in that way too but there's a certain amount of you know you're sitting those emotions you feel at 3am when you're sitting alone in your flat that you write you know on your guitar right there and then that don't necessarily translate to that other experience and the idea that there were people interested in in that other than you know just me at the time that I'm playing it was was kind of revelatory. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. For and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcast central. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.